So it has been our <clears throat> custom over the last several years uh, to take the month of January and to read a book together as a congregation and then to design our worship themes um, in line with some of the chapters or key concepts of that book, um, have small groups discuss them. And uh, we thought about doing that again this year. Uh, we've done stuff as contemporary as the whole in the gospel, um, which we probably did six or seven years ago as a congregation. We've done stuff as classic as last year's Mere Christianity. We've read entire books together. We've read portions of books together. And when we were thinking about what to do this year in January, uh, you, you know, you have some constraints you have to work with. You've you got to find a book that has, you know, four or five chapters, because that's about the time we've run a lot to it in the book of January. You've got to find something that really is relevant to life for our congregation, not just read a book, because we always read a book. Um, so in discussing this, there was nothing really that stood out that was written uh, recently for us to study, or even in the past. And so uh, we started tossing around the idea of, of just using one of the books of the Bible and you kind of narrow it down to what books of the Bible have four chapters. And there's the book of Philippians, and there's the book of Ruth. And so uh, it wasn't, you know, rocket science. Pop a rate, uh, paper, rock, scissors. And we're going to study the book of Ruth. Um, and uh, we're going to take about five weeks to do that together. And we think that the book of Ruth has a lot to say to us today, um, in particular because of one of the major concepts that we're going to highlight today and then throughout the rest of the time that we study this book together, this idea of loving kindness. And the world in which we live is a little bit short on kindness. And what does kindness mean from a scriptural point of view? What does kindness mean from God's perspective? How would God have us deal with, with kindness? And, and how important can it be in people's lives? Does it really make a difference? So this book of Ruth fits into a category of... Um, biblical literature uh, that is called historical. Um, there's like uh, poetry, um, you know, the Psalms are filled with poetry. There's prophetic literature like Isaiah and Jeremiah and other books like that. Um, and, you know, there are other kinds of writings, but it falls into what we call historical writings. So if you get through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, you come to these historical books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. These are the historical books that set the backdrop for the rest of history uh, for the people of Israel and lead us up then to the New Testament. But they kind of give us historical uh, content about the development of Israel, the choice of kings, how those kings work and, and, and what they do. And Ruth fits into this category of historical books. And one scholar has written that these books, these historical books, share a prophetic view of history describing how the obedience or disobedience of God's people is directly tied to the blessings and the curses of the covenant. And so this book of Ruth fits perfectly into that definition. What we're really talking about here is what difference does it make whether we're obedient or disobedient? Are there any consequences for obedience or disobedience? And how are those consequences played out in our everyday lives, in the life of a nation, in the future of God's people, in the, in the full course of the kingdom? So we're going to spend five weeks in this book of Ruth. We're going to delve into it more deeply in sections. But today we're going to fly over it at about 30,000 feet and kind of take some general ideas out of this. That hopefully as you read the book of Ruth and you study each week and prepare yourselves to come to worship, maybe prepare yourself for your discussion in your small groups, it'll give you a context and some ideas about how to read it and what really makes a difference. Now all of us like good stories and we're brought up on good stories uh, very early on in life. 
Um, you may have great memories of your parents reading you stories over and over and over again. If you are a parent, you probably read stories to your kids over and over and over again. There's nothing cooler than for my granddaughter to crawl up in my lap and bring a book and say, read this for me, Grandpa, because I know that it's not going to be a read this for me, Grandpa, one time. We're going to get to the end and she'll say again, and we're going to get to the end of the book and she'll say again and again. And hopefully I'm crying for dinner at that point and so we can get off this thing. But read the same books over and over and over again. She knows the characters, she knows the plot, she knows what's going to happen, but she just loves good stories. And we all love good stories. And probably many of you, like me, uh, also had another storybook at home, like the Children's Stories of the Bible. And it takes all these great stories um, from Scripture, you know, David and Goliath and Jonah and the whale and Esther becoming queen of Persia and all these other great stories of the Bible, puts them in a storybook. And so the, the Bible has great stories. And in fact, when you analyze stories the way academics analyze stories, most of the stories in the Bible have all the elements that make for a good story. They've taken some time to analyze these things. So there are these five elements make up any good story, if you think about it. Whether you're watching a television show, thinking about a movie, reading a biography or a book or anything, they all have good characters. They all have a setting. So the setting has to do with where does the story take place? What is the period of history? Um, what, is it, what are the people going through at the time? That's the setting, all right? Uh, there's a plot involved. What is the story about? What takes place? How do the characters interact with one another? There's usually a conflict that's involved, something that will engage in conflict. So there's a uh, word on the street is there's a new Star Wars movie out, right? A uh, Star Wars movie has good characters. In every story, the characters are, there's a protagonist and an antagonist. So we've got Luke Skywalker, right? Protagonist of the Star Wars movie. The antagonist is Darth Vader. In the story of David and Goliath, David is a protagonist and Goliath is an antagonist. And they have a conflict. There's some kind of conflict going on in this setting. So in the story of David and Goliath, the setting is the people of Israel are at war. And they're not doing very well at war. And this guy comes out and mocks the people all the time. And David can't understand why the people continue to put up with that. So there's some kind of conflict that's going to happen. And David and Goliath go into conflict. And then there's some kind of resolution to the conflict. Well, we know the resolution of the conflict of David and Goliath is David killing Goliath uh, we're not really sure about how all of the story of Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader plays out because they've got to keep making more and more movies and keep making more and more money. So we don't really know how this ends. But there's these stories have all these five elements. And the story in the book of Ruth has these five elements as well. It's a great story. God is a great storyteller. And this book of Ruth is a great story that has all of these elements. It has great characters. The first character that we meet in uh, the book of Ruth isn't Ruth. The first characters that we meet in Ruth are Elimelech and Naomi. And Elimelech and Naomi are a couple who are living in Israel at the time. And we're told that there's a great famine in the land of Israel. And Elimelech and Naomi decide that, you know, there's no way we can keep our family here. We're just going to die because of this famine. So they have to go off to a foreign country. Um, it would be like if you have a certain profession and your business kind of dries up and you can't find another job in Illinois, you might have to move to another state. It might be a state you don't really want to go to. It would be unnamed, you know, like, well, I won't say because I'll offend somebody if they have to go to Iowa or North Dakota or whatever. It might not be a place you would choose to go. And some people have this difficult decision, right? 
I mean, if you grow up in Chicagoland and your whole family is here, but there's no work for you here and your family isn't going to survive unless you move, you may have to move to a place outside of Chicago to exist. Elimelech and Naomi had to move out of Israel so their family could survive. And they went to a bitter and angry nation called Moab that was a natural enemy of Israel. They were at war all the time. You read about it in the Old Testament. Moab and Israel are bitter enemies. But they go there to live because that's the only place they can survive. They take their two sons with them. So Naomi and Elimelech take their two sons to Moab. So there are these foreign people, Israelites, in the land of Moab trying to eke out an existence. And um, their two sons marry Moabite women. Now there's an intriguing plot, right? You marry natural enemies. This should never have to happen to you. But your kids marry the wrong people. Anybody can relate to that? My mother-in-law thinks it happened to her. So, um, <laughs> she's not here today, so you can't ask her, but she'll say amen to that. Um, yeah, so, you know, their kids married the wrong people. They married Moabite women, which never thought would happen if you're an Israelite. Well, then, Naomi has tragedy upon tragedy happen to her. First, her husband, Elimelech, dies. Then her two sons die. So now you have Naomi in a foreign country with no husband and no sons. A little bit later, we'll talk about what a tragedy that can be. It's enough tragedy, right? Is that enough suffering for one person? To have your husband die and your two sons die and you're in a foreign country? Naomi is a very tragic character in this story. And next week, um, the theme of, of our message is about tragedy upon tragedy, about how this takes place in her life to the point where she changes her name to Bitter. But when you read the story of Naomi and Elimelech, you understand why she might want to change her name to Bitter. Nothing good happens to her. Now, one of the women that one of her sons married is Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess, as they're called. She's a Moabite. Um, she's not of any kind of you know, ranking. She's not a, you know, a princess or anything like that. She's just a common Moabite woman that marries one of Naomi and Elimelech's sons. And Ruth represents this important concept of God's loving kindness in human form. This idea of chesed. And she is going to share God's kindness with Naomi in ways that no one could ever that, uh, could imagine that anybody would do. It's about loving and caring and compassion. She embodies that in her life. She demonstrates the courage that accompanies chesed. And so if you look at your bulletin today, the, the worship order that you got, and you look at the cover where it talks about we're going to study the book of Ruth, and, and it's not just about kindness, but it's courageous kindness. Because this chesed, that is the Hebrew word for kindness, loving kindness, God's steadfast love, is not just about being nice to one another, but it usually involves some form of courage. So how does Ruth demonstrate courage as a great character? Well, she commits herself to her mother-in-law no matter what. So you know, she's a young woman. She's a Moabite. Her husband has died. Her mother-in-law is going to go back to Israel. She has no reason to go back there, really, except for loving kindness. And in Ruth chapter 1, probably the most well-known words out of the book of Ruth are found. Where you go... I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When you know the backdrop of this story, those beautiful words that sometimes people use to have in their wedding ceremony, because they really represent what it means to commit your life to someone else. Hey, where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Isn't that the way it is in marriage? You don't just marry the person. You get the whole package, the whole family. Your people are going to be my people. And your God is going to be my God. This is a Moabite woman who's saying, I'm going to become like an Israeli on your behalf because I'm going to commit my life to you. I'm going to forego my culture, my family, everything I grew up with and commit my life to you. Because you're my mother-in-law. And this is what God would require of me. And then we meet this guy named Boaz a little bit later in the story who's a relative of Naomi's and he lives in Israel. He's a wealthy, wise man of strong character. And Boaz also demonstrates this chesed idea through his attitude and his action. Boaz's actions are the foundation for the subtitle of Carolyn Custis James' book, The Gospel of Ruth, Loving God Enough to Break the Rules. It, it, it sounds like a clever juxtaposition. Oh, wasn't that a cute title for a book? Loving God Enough to Break the Rules? That's what it means to have courageous kindness. That Boaz, as well as Ruth, were willing to break the societal and cultural norms, to break the rules of their society in which they grew up, to break the rules of their religion, to do whatever it takes to show God's loving kindness to someone who really needs it. Now, there are other characters in this story. They mostly play a minor role. But those are the three major characters that we'll look at over the course of the next several weeks. The setting of this story is, um, is set in the historical period of the judges for the Israelites, which is a dark time in Israel's history. It's not their proudest moment. It's characterized by immorality and lack of spiritual vitality and commitment, internal turmoil in the nation, foreign domination, and then this famine that they, that they have going on as well that colors everything that they do. And the book setting puts a spotlight on one particular Israelite family who, in spite of numerous personal tragedies and experiences, embraces God's chesed. What is the plot? The story follows the life of Naomi who goes to Moab, experiences tragedy upon tragedy, to the point where she changes her name to Bitter, and her life is transformed later on simply by God's chesed, not poured out to her directly by God himself, but God's chesed as it's demonstrated through other people, like Ruth and like Boaz. And time and time again, this idea of God's loving kindness is raised in this great story. Now, every good story has a conflict a protagonist and an antagonist who are in conflict usually with one another. They have very attractive characters in good stories. If Naomi and Ruth are the protagonists in this story, and you can make a case for that, right? They're the protagonists in this story. Well, who's the antagonist? Not Boaz. He comes to their rescue. Who's the antagonist? I would submit to you that the antagonist in this story is life itself. The difficulty of life itself, of famine, the loss of a husband, 
the loss of your sons, the bitterness that creeps into your heart and mind and soul because of all these losses. The antagonist in this story, his life itself, the very kinds of things that you and I experience on a regular basis. And then every good story has some kind of resolution. The turning stone point in this story takes place almost exactly halfway through. Naomi and Ruth have returned to Israel. Ruth is committed to making their life work there. She'll do whatever it takes, including going to the fields and just gleaning the scraps out of the field that someone has left over. And that's where she meets Boaz. And she comes back and tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, the story of meeting Boaz. And this verse turns everything in the story. The Lord bless him, meaning Boaz. Naomi says, the Lord bless him. He, and meaning God at this point, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Remember, those words are coming out of the mouth of a woman who has changed her name and identity to bitter. But the Lord has not stopped showing his loving kindness to me in spite of everything that's happened. The book of Ruth, history literature of the Bible, has all the elements of a good story. And you can find them all there. But it's got a lot more than that as well. There are some very unique features uh, to the book of Ruth, beginning with the name of the book itself. The book of Ruth is is one of only two books in the entire Bible that is named after a woman. It's Ruth and Esther. It features women as its major characters. And today we might say, well, what's the big deal about that? That's not a big deal. But you can't apply modern sensibilities to the Old Testament. Women had no status in the society when this book was written. Back in B.C., uh, the Israelites, men, had a prayer that they would utter in the synagogue. Thank you, God, that I was not created a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. They were all in the same category. You were worthless if you were a woman, if you could not produce a family heir. That's the only thing that you were good for in B.C. And in the first century. And in many other centuries since that, in people's minds. The best thing you could do as a woman was to somehow produce an heir that could carry on the family name. And if you couldn't do that, you were worthless. You were willing to be thrown away. You couldn't produce what God really wanted you to produce in life. What God does in this story is really quite phenomenal if you think about it, right? He uses two women that had that kind of status and the rest of culture would be viewed that way. He uses two women as the heroines of this story. He uses two women to teach the entire Israelite nation and Christianity from then forward about God's chesed, about his loving kindness, and later about God's redemption. He uses two women to highlight his love for people and his transforming power. It's a radical position for God to take anytime, but especially in B.C. And in her book, The Gospel of Ruth, Loving God Enough to Break the Rules, Carolyn Custis James reminds us that God created women to be warriors 
It's a Hebrew word. He created them to be warriors. And he stations them on all sorts of battlefronts every day of our lives. On the surface, Ruth and Naomi's battles seem mundane and insignificant. Little do they know what their everyday struggles to survive will actually achieve. And isn't that sometimes exactly the way we feel? On the surface, our battles that we do every single day seem mundane and insignificant. I get up, I go to work, I talk to other people, I'm a stay-at-home mom, I take care of kids, I have a profession that really doesn't impact that many people. It's just the mundane stuff of life. What difference does that make? Little do we know what our everyday struggles to survive will actually achieve. The great thing about the story of Ruth is that there are really no great miracles that occur. It's not like someone was blind and got their sight back or someone was dead and got raised from the dead. It's the everyday loving kindness of people shown to one another that has transformative power. That's radical stuff. Being women put Ruth and Naomi at a huge disadvantage in their culture. But to up the ante, God adds a couple of other things. They're like millstones around their neck. They are women who have very little status. Naomi is a widow, as is Ruth. And Ruth is barren. I mean, if you're a widow and have no husband to give you an identity, and you can't produce children, you might as well be thrown in a scrap heap back in Ruth's day. And yet God takes women with all of these negative things in their life and raises them to a point of being examples of what it means to be one of his children. This book, like every other book in the Bible, isn't really about Naomi or Elimelech or Ruth or Boaz. This book is about God and it points us to God. It drives home one of the unique qualities that God has, this whole idea of kesed. It's a difficult word to translate, and so it's translated a lot of different ways in the scriptures. It's translated kindness, or mercy, or loving kindness, or steadfast love, or courageous kindness. In, in, in defining this word, Custis in a, a James in her book says, strong, it's a strong Hebrew word that sums up the ideal lifestyle for God's people. It is the way God intended for human beings to live together from the very beginning. The love your neighbor as yourself brand of living. An active, selfless, sacrificial, caring for one another that goes against the grain of our fallen natures. It's not natural for us to be kind to one another in this way. It's unnatural. Kesed can be boiled down to this. Someone cares and has freely made it their business to look out for you. Wouldn't we all be lucky if we knew someone who made that their business in life? Who made it their soul and purpose was to take care of us and to transform us and to change us. You could argue that neither Naomi or Ruth or Boaz are the main character in the story. But the real main character is God's chesed. 
This is a book that features everyday people, people like you and me, who face unbelievable difficulty and tragedy in their lives, and how God uses other men and women to communicate his love and caring, and that's the way people's lives are transformed. And then there is one other unique feature of this book of Ruth. It's this concept and idea of a redeemer. We're introduced to this thing called a kinsman redeemer. We, I mean, that might be foreign language. No idea what that means. But if you go toward the end of the book, there's this idea of a, a kinsman redeemer. Remember that Elimelech and Naomi lived in Israel, and there they owned property. They had to leave that property behind when they went to Moab simply to survive. When Naomi came back, that property was still in the name of Elimelech. But women couldn't own property. What was she going to do? What happens to that property? Well, in Israelite culture, there was a law that said that every family has a kinsman redeemer. Someone who would step in and buy that property so it would stay in the family. A kinsman redeemer, however, would have to take money out of his own resources to buy that land, not so that he could own it, so that Naomi could keep it in her family. In other words, he'd have to dip into his retirement account, into his kid's future, and say, I'm going to spend your money so that Naomi's family can survive and live. So there was a kinsman redeemer in line to do that for Naomi. And Boaz knew who it was. And he had a conversation with this kinsman redeemer. And he said, yeah, I'll love up that responsibility. I should do that. And then he was reminded, well, you know what that means, don't you? That, that means you've got to withdraw money from your retirement account and spend it on this property so that Naomi can keep it in her family. Your kids are going to get less. You're going to have less to live on. You're going to have to make a big sacrifice to be able to do this. I had to think about that a while. Until he decided that he couldn't and wouldn't do that. And Boaz says, well, I'm next in line. I'm, I'm the next in the family that would become this kingsman redeemer. and I'll do that for her. I'll sacrifice so that she can live and have this land kinsman redeemer does it sound like a foreshadowing of anyone you might be familiar with a redeemer named Jesus who came and lived among us and sacrificed his own life so that you and I might live now and forever in a way that we never could have imagined you know, Ruth and Boaz get married in the end. It's a great resolution of the story. A little unrealistic maybe, but it happened. They got married. And lo and behold, Ruth and Boaz have a child. And that makes Naomi the great-great-grandmother of King David. From whom our redeemer above all redeemers comes from his line, his genealogy. So in the genealogy of Jesus, you see Boaz and Ruth. 
kinsman redeemer, the ultimate kinsman redeemer. There's a lot of great stuff in this book. But one of the things that is perplexing is that it's just this simple act of loving kindness that transforms people. It changes the way others live and behave. Just simple acts of kindness. It doesn't have to be a miracle. We're all capable of simple acts of kindness to other men and women. This just past week, in our own church, we had a woman who's been struggling with all sorts of stuff in her life and relationships and all sorts of Everything's going wrong for her. And then her dryer quits working. You can't do your laundry at home now because your dryer doesn't work. Now, that doesn't sound like a national crisis. Donald Trump's not going to step in for her. Her dryer doesn't work. But if you're her and you got all this other stuff and now on top of it all your dryer doesn't work, it is a crisis. And some people from our church found out, oh, my neighbor, they're getting rid of a dryer. Would you mind giving it to this woman from our church? No, so they haul it over there. But they don't know how to hook it up. So a couple other guys show up from our church to hook up this dryer for this woman. She has a dryer. Within an hour, she had already written us a note, an email, about how overjoyed she was about how the church was being the church. Simple acts of kindness. It's what God calls us to every single day. This book of Ruth inspires us to understand and know that simple acts of kindness, chesed, can radically transform the lives of other men and women. Let us pray. God in heaven, we thank you for good stories. Stories that touch our heart our minds, and our souls. We think, thank you that you are the author of our story, that you would stay involved in our story, and that you want to redeem us in the end. Touch us, O oh Lord, and help us to remember that every single day we can share your chesed with other men and women. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, this is the time in our service where we prepare our hearts and minds to um, give to the Lord our tithes and offerings to support the ministry of this church. Uh, just a reminder that some of you think about New Year's resolutions. Maybe in your New Year's resolutions you have the idea of growing spiritually. I want to encourage you to look at the program offerings in our own church, other ways that you could be involved so you can grow spiritually yourself. Um, research indicates that the two greatest catalysts to spiritual growth are read your Bible and find a place to serve. But there's also, also other things that you could do to do that as well. And so we encourage you to look for those things. Let us now worship God with our tithes and our offerings. <laughs>